2: Welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and this is really exciting because I'm going to release to you the live recording from the Anesthesiology 2022 Conference in New Orleans. It was a ton of fun. We had an amazing guest, Jesse Ehrenfeld, who we interviewed live in front of a fantastic audience right there in New Orleans on the exhibit floor. Um, This has been now the second year in a row we've done this. It's been a ton of fun. We did about a half an hour of me interviewing Jesse and then opened it up to the audience and had just amazing input and great questions from the audience. So you'll hear it all here. And we're going to try to do this every year. So if you're going to be in San Francisco in 2023 for the anesthesiology conference, plan on coming to hear the live AGRAC episode. And we'll have more announcements, obviously, as that gets closer. Remember, of course, you can get CME through AGRAC by going to the website, acrac.com, and clicking on the link. We're partnered with CMEFI for that. And it's really a great opportunity to get some CME when you're listening to AGRAC anyway. All right, without further ado, here is the recording from our live episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm really thrilled to be here live at Anesthesiology 2022 in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm going to introduce my amazing guest in just a minute. Thank you all for being here. Let's hear it from our audience, our live audience. So happy to have you all here and to be able to do this live. We are not sending it out live, so we're recording it. So if any friends and colleagues want to hear it be on ASA's podcast, you can tell people to check it out there. I want to say a huge thank you to Maureen Gagan, who is right over there and who put a huge amount of work into making this happen. Thank you, Maureen. Sonia and Chris are responsible for all of our awesome ACRAC social media presence on Twitter and Instagram. If you follow our weekly Monday questions and all that, they do that. So let's give it up for them. Thank you for all your hard work on that. My amazing guest today is Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld, who, among many other things, was recently elected the president, is now the president-elect of the American Medical Association, which is really a huge honor. He will be the first anesthesiologist ever to be the president. He's also done a lot of incredible things. He's board certified in anesthesiology and clinical informatics. He trained at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's a senior associate dean and a tenured professor of anesthesiology, as well as the director at Wisconsin. He's a professor of anesthesiology and health policy at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, and he divides his practice among many things, teaching, research, directing a $560 million statewide health philanthropy. He's been an advisor to the World Health Organization, Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld. So Jesse and I are gonna talk about a few things. I'll ask him some hopefully provocative questions, and we'll have some good discussion, and then we will have an opportunity at the end for you all to ask him questions. I guess you could ask me questions, too. There's a mic here, and at the end, we will have an opportunity. So think about any questions you want to ask Jesse. So, Jesse, thank you again for being here, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Just tell us a little bit about what your practice looks
1: like
3: now and how you spend your time. Yeah, so I was in the OR on Monday and Thursday this week, but I won't be back in the OR again until November. Um, I do mostly cases, neurosurgical uh, work. Uh, and then a smattering of other things. Uh, I try to be flexible and a good team player. Most of my time though is spent um, leading um, what uh, Jed referred to as the largest health philanthropy in Wisconsin. So it's a a half a billion dollar fund that lives at the medical school and I have the incredible pleasure of leading a team that basically gives away grants. So that's what I do with most of my time um, when I'm not playing an AMA president on TV. Most of my uh, active research in the informatics space is now kind of on the policy side, doing a lot of work around AI regulation um, and Policy frameworks.
2: Great. Tell me a little bit about your involvement in the AMA. How did you become involved? What made you pursue leadership with the organization? How did you become president? And what do you plan to do as president?
3: <laughs> it was totally easy. No. <laughs> um, so the AMA is headquartered in Chicago, and they have their big annual policy making session in Chicago every June. So when I finished my first year, I drove up the street, um, walked into this ballroom. And there I saw physicians from every state, every specialty, including anesthesia, uh, which I did not know at the time They I wanted to go into, but they were there debating critical issues about what the future of the practice of medicine was going to be. We have a lot of problems in America, in the globe, in healthcare, and all of us hear about those problems every day. And a lot of people like to complain about those problems. I saw involvement with the AMA doing policy work, working with legislatures, working in DC, to not just complain. Um, And so I got hooked. Um, uh, The ASA was incredibly supportive of my involvement with the AMA. I uh, was able to get elected to the ASA Resident Component Governing Council, and that's where I really learned about the kind of organizational politics, how this all worked, started to really get connected with an incredible team of mentors to debate policy, to represent anesthesiology um, as I was entering into the profession. Great. And so that got you involved. And then You at some point
2: must have said, you know, I enjoy this organization. I want to get involved in leadership within the AMA. So what did that look
3: like? So you'll go to events like ASA, the opening session, and you see people on stage in these leadership roles, and you ask yourself, how did they get there? Um, And I asked that question. I remember asking one of my mentors, a guy named Steve Stack, I said, how did you, you know, get there in this position? If you show up and you do the work, Your professional colleagues will recognize that and reward you with opportunity. He was totally right. And so um, I uh, got involved in a a committee and a few things here and there, uh, and suddenly got elected to um, the AMA board as a young physician in 2014, got reelected in 2018, and then this past June uh, was elected AMA president. The AMA has a 21-person board of directors. There are 19 physicians, including a young physician, a resident, There's a medical student on the AMA board and a public member who's a non-physician. Raise
2: your hand if you're a medical student in the audience. All All right, right. lots of med students. So keep in mind when you see that call for AMA positions. And then how about residents? How many residents do we have? So same thing, right? Something to keep in mind. And any young physicians out there as well. I don't qualify anymore, but you are now president-elect. You'll have a year serving as president starting in June, I believe? Correct. When you think about that upcoming year, what are your... I'm sure you have many, but if you had to say two or three kind of really key goals you have in your mind, what do you want to do?
3: there are things that are deeply important to me. Um, I've dedicated a large part of my professional portfolio to trying to use technology to advance health equity, let informatics team have done a lot of work in the LGBT health space. My year will be defined by things outside of my control. You know, this year alone, as we've gotten past the major hurdle of COVID, we've had monkeypox and things that have taken an enormous amount of energy and time and effort to try to figure out how to navigate from a professional standpoint. So um, I don't know what's ahead. We won't be done with COVID um, come next June, that's for sure. And the physician pipeline, um, who's coming into medicine, how we can uh, deal with access issues, scope of practice, Medicare payment reform, technology. um, But it's an endless list of things that uh, will certainly take time and attention. Fair enough. Do you feel like there's anything unique about being an
2: anesthesiologist that you will bring with you to your time on the presidency or that you have Already brought to the AMA?
3: I still believe that anesthesiologists are systems thinkers, right? You know, in the OR it's how do we set up our systems, how do we get the cases done, how do we make sure that care is delivered as safely as possible. That that's been the centerpiece of the specialty's effort to drive up patient safety. And I think a lot of people who kind of come into the specialty have that mindset in that brain. Certainly I do. Um, And so when I I look at a problem and I'm sitting in a policy discussion with a regulator or a lawmaker or a physician colleague, I'm driving uh, the conversation uh, when I'm engaging.
2: Great. So I know that you're a combat veteran, and thank you for your service. I'm wondering if you think about what you learned doing anesthesia in the military.
3: Is there anything you would recommend or offer to civilians... Sure. So I, um, I spent 10 years in the Navy Reserves. Um, I was not smart enough to get the Navy to pay for medical school. If anyone in here was, kudos to you. But at the end of my training, it was just one of those things I was uh, inspired to do. And so I deployed in 2014, 2015 in Afghanistan. What, what I will say, you know, there, there are things you get to do in military medicine that, that just don't exist anywhere else in the field, which are, which are just um, extraordinary. But the thing that really struck me when I walked into the opera room on Thursday, um, and I knew the cases I was going to do, right, because I looked them up, I talked to my residents. I don't know, somebody could probably do the math of the number of OR techs, nurses, monitors, monitoring techs, circulators, residents, to figure out, like, how many different factorial combinations of people might show up to do the case, but it's never the same team we had on Monday, and when I was deployed in the military, that was not the case. I was there with the same team that, for nine months, you know, we ate, operated you know slept drank we did everything together when you moved i knew exactly what you were going to do when my trauma surgeon started to do something i could anticipate exactly what was going to happen i think that was something very unique about that particular uh, operating environment
2: i don't know of everywhere but i know for us and a lot of places there are so many for example traveling nurses uh, locums anesthesiologists and it feels like not only are you with a different team but the team may not have ever even worked at that hospital before
3: yeah, it's, it's a challenge and, and you know I, I, it's not good or bad. It's, it's just the reality that, that we live in. And we're gonna need to think about from a system standpoint, how do we ensure consistency, reliability, ensure that people get the highest quality care delivered that we know is possible when there are these other factors that sometimes impede that.
2: Well, I'm sure that the AMA is very interested in thinking about our healthcare systems, shortage of physicians and anesthesiologists. I'm sure that's something that you will be heavily involved in over the next year. So yeah, thanks in advance for your work on that. Tell me a little bit about that and your focus.
3: Yeah, no, so um, all of us, everybody sitting here, everybody listening online, are passionate about some set of things Uh, and it's it's gonna be different for everybody but but for me it's been about you know use of technology and health equity and so as i thought about you know how can i engage in conversations and policy work um in public debate it's been focused on how do i engage in those things uh you know i was privileged to lead an informatics research division for for nine years um have done a lot of um clinical decision support trials, um, AI development work, um, and now I'm, I'm deeply involved in kind of the standards game. So figuring out, you know, what's the regulatory path that exists today? We need it. We need to figure that out. There are real issues um, that will impact how those technologies um, are or are not adopted, or accepted or not. How we develop trust in these tools. So for me, that's something that I, I you know, I, I, I could I could talk about all day. Um, and I and I love those kinds of things. And uh, and I, I've been able to certainly engage through through AMA and ASA and other venues as well as you know my research portfolio. If there's anyone in the audience, if they're thinking, you know, uh, this is
2: a piece I've always been interested in, I certainly know I have residents who came into residency thinking they wanted to be involved in advocacy and and have kind of, you know, struggled to figure out how to do it. Now, part of that is being a resident. You don't have that
3: much time. But what would you advise? I I think it's uh, really easy through the pathways that the ASA and the AMA have connected to use organized medicine as a vehicle to do the advocacy work. And, And the great thing about the ASA and the AMA is they are organizations made up of our members, our members who show up and who vote. Uh, and who engage in discussions, and you see that in the House of Delegates here at the ASA, uh, you see that through uh, the medical student component, the resident component, whatever your passion is, it's a really easy, ready-made vehicle to plug into uh, as soon as you pay your your you know your annual dues, or twenty-five or, or forty bucks, or whatever it happens to be, which is often often paid for you. And they're ready-made pathways, There are training opportunities, but there's also mentorship, and mentorship is so key. You know, I remember the first time I walked into a senator's office and I actually got to meet with a senator, and I had been coached. I had my talking points, um, and uh, I don't think I was as slick as I probably would be today, but I didn't fumble through it. Now, I'll tell you a little story. I'll never forget this. My department chair, and I had, I had a couple when I was a resident because it changed over, he wasn't sold on advocacy. And and, and I was invited uh, to give grant views and, and this and that. Um, and, and he actually walked out. <laughs> he, he left the auditorium. And he's like, uh, ah, good luck. Um, let me know how that works out. And, and so I, I was like, okay, that's, that's not great for me. It's like a CA1 or something. A year and a half later, his secretary connects me to him, and she's like, uh, uh, you know, Dr. So-and-so would like to see you. And I was like, oh, God, what did I do? So I, I call my staff, and I was like, I got to go see you know, someone. He's like, oh, no problem. And I walked up to the office, and he said, listen, there's a regulatory issue in the state legislature um, that the hospital needs us to weigh in on, and I need you to go with me. Um, And so I'll never forget squeezing into the back of a cab to go off to uh, to have this meeting. Um, And it was the flip, right? It was him seeking my advice, mentorship, and counsel about how do we have this conversation in productive ways. Um, Finding those mentors through organized medicine was a really easy thing to do. Great.
2: I want to pivot and talk a little bit about... You're well-known for your work with transgender healthcare. We could obviously do an entire episode just on this and, and how important it is and how to approach it, but is there anything you would recommend keeping in mind when caring for transgender patients?
3: Sure. Yeah, that could be an hour conversation, but what I would say is this. It starts by coming at the care with a sense of humility. Every patient is unique and different, um, and their experience is unique and different like all of our patients and, and walking in the door uh, with a sense of humility, I think I think really is straightforward things to do, like you know, not make assumptions. Ask people what you want them to be called. That you should do with every patient. That is what I do with every patient. I walk in and I say, "Hi, I'm Dr. Ehrenfeld. What would you like me to call you today?" Um, I ask, you know, who is sitting next to you, because you know that will help you develop that rapport with your patients. Um, particularly important for, for transgender patients. You know, on the medicine side, there are a, a few nuanced drug interactions. Uh, there are some centers where anybody on birth control will get a, a note or a warning, but it's, it's actually pretty straightforward and not something to be worried about.
2: Great. All right. And of course, people can look into this. We've had a, a couple of really great talks on this and, and a whole hour long conversation on it. So I would encourage people, if you're doing this kind of work or if you have patients and you're wondering, because it's, it's really important to get this stuff right. I know you also mentioned a few times, and you're also known for your work in AI and healthcare. It's something that's really interesting. We've had some episodes on ACRAC about it. There've been a lot of talks about it. Tell me a little bit about that, and how do you see that playing forward into the future?
3: Yeah, so I like to talk about AI as augmented intelligence, not artificial, because I don't think it's the computer versus the machine. I think it's about how do we use technology. When I'm in the OR, there are 47 live parameters, seven streams of real-time data Coming at me. It is impossible for me to think that there aren't subtle signs that I'm missing. Things that a machine, a computer, um, could figure out in real time quicker than I could. Um, and there are studies that, that demonstrate that. So, figuring out how do we have monitoring technology, how do we have devices that can benefit from algorithms. So, that's what I think the goal ought to be. And, th- and that's why I like to talk about augmenting our capacity, our intelligence, rather than replacing it with something that's, that's, that's artificial. So um, I, I've done a lot of work in that space funded by, by NIH and DOD. It's an exciting uh, space. Real-world applications are starting to come online. They're, they're mostly today in like, the totally unsexy space of hospital operations, supply chain, scheduling, equipment, things like that. I think it's really exciting, as you said, to think about the ways in which AI will help us do our job better. Devices that have an AI-enabled overread can help you identify structures in, in real-time. Algorithms that can help you um, do dose adjustment um, for you know, real-time infusions. All sorts of imaging technologies. So uh, I think it's an exciting moment to figure out what those things can do for the practice uh, and certainly uh, plan to stay engaged. AI won't replace anesthesiologists, but anesthesiologists who use AI will replace those who don't. I actually hadn't thought about the kind of healthcare
2: supply chain version, but that probably is really significant. And I also hadn't heard about the ultrasound. That's fascinating. So the idea of being able to have a suggestion that's the carotid, that's the IJ, that's the nerve that you're looking at. Especially, you could imagine people with a little, you know, right now, I think there are certain. Uh, blocks, let's say, that you know, you really have to have a, a level of expertise to be able to even try because you know it's harder to identify, it's a little deeper, you still don't know what you're doing, but you might be able to do it without maybe quite as much practice, without maybe the full fellowship behind you, right? So there's ways that maybe this will help expand the capabilities of your general anesthesiologist.
3: I think that's right. And, you know, I I mean, I I had a patient who was prone 1A Thursday and, you know, you could imagine technology support that could make that easier uh, as opposed to me sweating under the drapes trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. Yeah. All right. I'm going to throw you a
2: a curveball that that just popped in my head. Not so much a curveball, but fellowship versus no fellowship. And, you know, these days it's a harder question than it has been before. The job market, as we all know, is very, very hot. People are getting offered a lot of money to take jobs right out of residency.
3: And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts for people uh, on fellowship versus no fellowship. Yeah. So my, my thinking has changed. If you asked me 10 years ago, I would say, absolutely, if there's something you love, do a fellowship. You don't want to be a commodity anesthesiologist who can be replaced. Um, develop some special expertise, some special things that you want to do. Today, I'm not so sure. In, in, in transparency, I did not do a fellowship. I came out of residency. I, I was on an NIH training award. So it's described as a fellowship because it was a T32 training grant, but it wasn't uh, an informatics faculty. It was full-time while doing my research. So I think, you know, if there's something that you truly love, go for it, pursue it. But I wouldn't do a fellowship just for the sake of doing a fellowship at this point. Yeah, I think
2: that's good advice. That's pretty much what I tell our residents is if there's something you want to do an extra year, you know, 50 years from now when you retire, you're not going to look back and say, man, I wish I had gone into practice one year earlier. So do what you love. But if you I don't think you need to do a fellowship just to do a fellowship.
3: The other perspective is, you know, if you delay entry into practice less, right, is the salary differential that you would be making during those years, and that's really the last year of salary whenever you retire. So, um, you know, there is a financial impact potentially um, that some people do think about. Yeah. All right. Do you have something you would recommend to the audience—a a book,
2: a podcast, a TV show, anything you enjoy that you would recommend they check out? Or it could be
3: something here in New Orleans. If you we have... are in New Orleans, and you have to have the beignets, have you had any yet? Cafe Du Monde can't be beat, and if you miss it over uh, in the French Quarter, they have them at the airport now. So.
2: Ooh. <laughs> All right. Well, I am glad you said we didn't plan this, but I was going to recommend beignets, but not Cafe Du Monde. So I'll tell you, I looked on Yelp, and a couple people on Yelp said you know, don't wait in line at Café du Monde, go to Loretta's. So I had never heard of Loretta's, but someone here has, right? So I said, all right, where's Loretta?" Loretta's is like a third of a mile up little storefront in the French market. And there were no line at all. And the beignets were out of this world. They have a praline beignet, which is a beignet with like a caramel praline filling and it was to die for. There's a lot of other little fun shops there, as well as uh, food shops, and then also a lot of they're selling necklaces and masks and all kinds of stuff. I bought my kids masks at the hotel, which was an incredibly stupid thing to do, and then found if you want to get a gift for your kids or family, check that out as well for that. Um, All right, so we both recommended Beignets. All right, I want to let you all have a chance. So if you have a question for Dr. Ehrenfeld, please come up to the mic and ask away.
0: Uh, my name's Justin, uh, last name Holbrook. I'm from Monroe. Thank you both for this conversation. I thought it was really insightful. Thank you also for the uh, Loretta's recommendation. Uh, I agree with you at the Café de Monde, so I will definitely check that out. Um, so you mentioned the importance of mentorship. What was the best advice you were given from one of your mentors, or what was the advice that you wish you were given?
3: Best advice was to take my personal statement, rip it up, and throw it out the door. So find somebody who will... Give you the advice that you don't want to hear, because you, you will need it at, at, at times. And um, you know, I, I I still have like a collection of mentors. Um, And that will evolve um, as you kind of go through your your professional life. In in some, it's a very, like, formal, like, you know, oh, I was assigned to you for this thing. Others, it's more organic. Don't worry so much about, you know, the parameters around, you know, what the relationship is called or how it's structured or how it was set up. More think about what are you getting out of the interactions with the person uh, who you have on that list in your back of your mind as one of your your mentors. And gut check feedback.
2: Thank you. Thanks for the question.
1: and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
2: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back.
3: Hello, I'm Beth Wilson. I'm actually a graduate of the Anesthesiology Residency Program at Hopkins. I'm proud to say that. We, uh, are,
2: we are very proud.
3: <laughs> currently a faculty member at Emory So my question is, how can we get more involved in research, like whether it's via NIH grants, fair grants? I say this because, I mean, this genuinely to Hopkins, I learned about some of this stuff actually as a junior faculty member and less actually in residency. You know, my experience, and I've been uh, at half a dozen centers in my, you know, relatively short professional career, um, is that some places lower the barrier to entry. So if if you have an idea and, like, you want to do a study or do some, you know, observational research or a trial um, and you've never done it before, like, it's a big lift. Like, it's hard. But if you can find ways to lower the barrier to entry uh, and make it possible for people to participate, to get people a glimpse of what's possible and help them build the skills uh, to successfully participate. I mean, it's like the first time um, I wrote a research paper, it was terrible. Uh and one of my mentors who's still a mentor, he rewrote it in track changes, and I was like, oh my god, there's nothing left of my paper. He rewrote the paper for me. Um he didn't just rewrite it, um he rewrote it in track changes so I could see what he did. And you know, the second time it wasn't as bad. The third time it's pretty good. One of my mentors, um somebody named Atul Gwande, some of you may have ri- written some of his stuff, he was my MPH thesis advisor. I never forget sitting down with him and I had an abstract. It was just an abstract. And he's like, Jesse every word in the sentence has to matter. That's not how I think about writing. I just like write, you know, you put the words together and there's a sentence and you describe, you know, the method, right? Um, in his mind, every word has to have a purpose. And, and it is a totally different way of thinking that, you know, occasionally uh, I'll incorporate as I'm trying to sort of do some, some editing. So I think, you know, from a structural standpoint, some departments I think are very effective, but I don't think we should ever expect anybody to show up on day one and suddenly you're the PI on a multicenter study, that's uh, not gonna work.
1: Thank you very much. I think you definitely speak to mentorship. That's a big part of it.
2: Thanks, Beth. Yeah, and I would just add, to do research, you have to really have time to do it, and I think the most successful residents at doing research are those who are in research tracks, because they have, you know, six months or a year dedicated to research. It is something I think we need to think about as a specialty, is whether if we, if we want more anesthesiologists to be facile with research... Do we need to build that into residency in a way that we aren't doing now? I think that's something we need to think about.
3: And and I will say, so I did uh, the six-month research training pathway as a CA3, which was great. I was the first person on a basic science T32 training award. I had to kind of push to make that happen, but they agreed to let me do it got a FAIR grant. And when I got the FAIR grant, FAIR said, we, we love you. We love your mentor. We love your project. We're concerned you don't have formal research training. Is a CA3. Not going to happen. So instead, I took some biostats classes um, to be able to sit down with the biostats at least know what questions to ask. Um, and that's actually why I ended up getting my MPH, because I figured once I took those initial classes, it was, it was a third of the credits. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I would add that for
2: those of you who are interested in doing research and don't have that statistical background, which I do not, if you can get it, great. If not, don't think you're, you're out of luck, because I will say there's a way to have some sort of access, whether that's through the School of Medicine or individual departments, to statisticians. And if you go with your idea and sit down with them, not only will they help you figure out how to design the study and do the stats, but you will learn a ton about stats, may not be able to, especially as a resident, to take the course, but you may be able to learn a lot by just sitting down with the statisticians and talking through the ideas you have.
1: My name is Missy Kimlinger. I'm a fourth year uh, at Vanderbilt. Um, Dr. Amfeld, you taught me Foundations of Healthcare Delivery back when I was a first year, and
3: you survived.
1: Yes, and here I am. <laughs> um, but I was wondering if you could speak on how you balance your research, education, advocacy, um, kind of into your career.
3: Yeah, so I've been uh, in the OR one or two days a week since my third year residency because of my other interests in in research, education, policy, and and whatnot. I would never want to do less um, because then I think it becomes challenging to maintain appropriate clinical skills. But for me, it's important to not give up, particularly on the policy side. And, uh, you know, I, I also would say, you know, I do a lot in my life. The easiest thing I do is show up in the OR because that's what I went to medical school and residency for, and I do cases that I'm familiar with. It's rewarding. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on the policy side that is incredibly frustrating. I mean, we, we could talk about telemedicine expansion related to the you know, CARES Act and what's happening on that front, and it's like, oh my God, it drives you nuts. But you know, the patient that I took care of on Monday, having had uh, you know, an MCATPA um, shunt for uh, you know, Moyamoya disease, um, is no longer going to have strokes. Is going to regain um, having a semi-normal life. You know, you get a certain satisfaction out of you know engaging in those kinds of procedures, cases. What we do clinically every every day that we're in the operating room, and, and I, I love that. Um, I would never want to give that up. Um, but for me, it's been figuring out what that balance ought to be.
1: Uh, my name's Zara. I'm a medical graduate from the Khan University in Pakistan. This is my first time in New Orleans, my first time here. It's great to see everybody, all the experts in the area. Um, you know, we talk about a lot of big things. We talk about policy, education, transgender healthcare, care, a lot of things that are very impactful. So on a more personal level, what is it that keeps you motivated to get up every day and tackle something that seems so big on the outside, but you have to break it down into pieces? And-
2: so Zahra's asking, you know, Jesse, you're involved in, in so much and so many things. What gets you waking up in the morning and having the energy to
3: tackle these big issues that you tackle. Is that right, Zara? Did I get that? Okay. Yeah, you did. 515 and 545, I've got a three and a half year old that marches into my husband and I's room uh, looking for juice. Um, so when I, when I think about, you know, all of, you know, what's this, what is this all about, right? That, that I have been given so much privilege in in education, in opportunity, you know, you know, whatever it is that I have an obligation to give something back. A lot of the driver of that is, you know, for what's ahead of us, for the people sitting in this audience, uh, who will inherit the profession, uh, for my son, uh, and hopefully future generations who are going to inherit the world that, that we leave behind them.
2: I'll just say, I, one of the things I loved about this morning, I don't know if you all caught this morning's, uh, keynote speech, but one of the things I loved was that, you know, here's, this guy, Mick Eberling, and he's done these incredible things, right? I mean, he's created a, you know, done all this amazing stuff and it can be intimidating, I think, to think, well, you know, I'm not going to do that, right? But if you caught what he said was, you know, try to do something every day to give back a little bit and it doesn't have to be anything that you would think of as huge like that, right? And I think those little things can be so powerful and, you know, it's interesting because not only do they help those people, but it, it gives you energy, right? How often have you asked to talk to the manager, to tell them how wonderful the service was that you had from your waiter or waitress, right? We never do that. And yet it's wonderful to see that manager who you asked to talk to them and they're just beat down, right? They know it's gonna be yet another complaint. And when you tell them, actually you just wanted to tell them how wonderful the service was, like their whole day changes, right? And then of course it gets passed on to the waiter. It is a really wonderful feeling to be able to do that. And so I would say, take the time out of your day to give back even if it's a small thing and it makes a huge difference.
1: I'm getting ready to apply for a fellowship, and you mentioned that a few years ago you would definitely say go for it. And now you're saying, well, I don't know the pros and cons.
3: Yeah, I think I think the the labor market, the economics have just changed in the last five to ten years compared to you know what it was when we probably started um, in in the profession. So again, I, I think it's a very personal choice. I mean, I almost did a pediatrics fellowship because I love kids, and I almost did it, and I said, you know what, probably only going to be. A part-time clinician. Uh, I'm going to have this other portfolio. I didn't want to give up adult care, but if there's something that you're passionate about um, that speaks to you, I-, I would say go for it. Um, but I also wouldn't feel uh, embarrassed, uh, mistreated, or-, or sulking if, if you can't, uh, if-, if you decide not to.
1: My name is Dalandika. I currently attend the University of Maryland in Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you both for this talk. It was very insightful. I think definitely for us that are still going into training, especially as rising physician leaders, is not only what we say but how we communicate it. So for those of us that are going into training and still working on things such as communication skills and how to effectively portray a message, what advice do you have on helpful training?
3: We're all working on those skills. And and if there's somebody who tells you that they're not, um, they're lying. And so um, I had an experience. I was at, forgive me, I don't remember if it was GW or Georgetown. And um, this was a long time ago. uh, And so um, the dean of the school where I happened to be was actually giving a lecture. Um, And so I I went and watched this talk. She knew I was sitting there in the audience. Um, When things had sort of um, ended, she said, so, Jesse, what could I have done better? And even the dean... Who was like a very senior person, very seasoned, had given thousands of talks, um, and so my advice to you was look for that feedback. And you know, there, there's lots, there's science and there's education, and, and a lot of, um, and, you know, I think very practical things that you can do to get more effective, more meaningful feedback. Like asking, could you give me some feedback after we work together today, and not surprising them so they have some time to think about it. Those strategies are, I think are important. But if you are active and you seek it out, um, those things can help. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, people always want more feedback, and, and there's no question. I tell
2: our faculty we should be doing more, we should be giving more feedback. But the single best way for you as a resident, advocate for your own learning. And just like Jesse said, I would say the night before when you're pre say, you know, there's, if possible, tomorrow, I'd love to, for you to tell me one thing I could do better, right? And people think, well, why, you know, they should tell me that anyway. But it's really intimidating. I have people who are my residents who would come into my office and say, you know, I'm, I never get any good constructive feedback from the faculty. And I'll say, I know we're working on it, try to, try to ask for it. And then they become faculty, and they're now faculty at Hopkins, constructive feedback. And they were the same ones complaining about not getting it, right? So it's, why is that though? It's not because they were disingenuous, it's because it's really hard. It's hard to say to somebody, here's what you could do better because you're worried about hurting their feelings. So that's really huge is to do that. And then the other thing I would say about communication is you have to practice it, right? One of the reasons people don't have those difficult feedback conversations is because those are hard conversations and they shy away from doing it. Same thing, if you have a faculty member who may be, you know, now there should never be a faculty member who is actively harassing you, but if there's a faculty member, a lot of people say like, I hate working with that person. I never want to work with them again. But the alternative would be to say, you know, I'm going to see if I can make the best out of this day, right? I'm going to practice my managing up, then that's really something. So practice, take
3: those opportunities to practice. And and I'll tell you something that I do very intentionally. So uh, Thursday, I did five cases, two residents. Um, I made sure that I was in one pre-op, and it's really easy for a faculty member to just, you know, you got the pre-op, we'll talk afterwards. You know, I'll go wave at the patient and make sure everything's fine. It takes more energy uh, and more time, but that's something that I try to do every day that I'm working with trainees. Not every faculty member does it, but again, if a if a resident says to me, "Hey," Dr. Enfield, will you come watch me do my pre-op and give me some feedback? You know, I'll jump at the opportunity because I try to do it anyway. There's some great tips that I look forward to using moving forward. Thank you both. Thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Duncan. I'm also from Baltimore. Cohesiveness among your staff is actually really important in the hospital setting for good patient outcomes. And that uh, I read recently that a large majority of healthcare workers are going to leave their profession in the next few years. I'm curious what you. Think Yeah, so um, a big focus of the AMA's work is to make the practice of medicine not suck. And there's a lot behind that, but wellness, burnout, how do we make practice of medicine so that people don't leave is now trivial. Um, And there are a lot of drivers for why um, the day-to-day grind are challenging on the regulatory side, on the documentation side. But I think all of us can uh, think about, from a system standpoint, coming back to our earlier conversation, how can we make sure that we uh, do things in a way that is most meaningful and gives us the most satisfaction? And that is often at a system level, not at the individual level. And that's where I think we need to um, redouble our efforts. Thank you.
0: Thank y'all both for uh, coming down here to speak with us. My name is Peter Pham, uh, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine in Fort Worth, Texas.
2: There you go, did you see Dr. socks? Yep, I was was the Texas
0: guy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so my question is, uh, in regards to the AI-assisted technologies, where do you think we are from that technology being useful and practical for clinical use and what steps are being taken to encourage those processes?
3: So there uh, is a whole fleet of entrepreneurs in the wings uh, in various states. Unfortunately, a lot of those products, I think, are disconnected from the reality of clinical practice uh, because they haven't involved physicians at the outset of the development of those technologies, which, which is a mistake. Um, and so the AMA has tried to think about how we can change that paradigm. There's an unbelievable amount of money from venture firms um, and private equity going into the development, but it's, it's, it's billions of dollars are going into digital medicine, digital tech, AI. So there will be products, there will be a marketplace, making sure that we end up with things that we want to use, that are safe to use, that we have trust and confidence in um, is where there's, I think, the most uncertainty, not so much on the product development side. Thank
0: you so much. Thanks.
3: I'm a general practice physician in Gulfport, Mississippi. Reapplying anesthesia residency. Thank you for being here. Firsthand, I've seen a neighbor who is crippled by medical debt.
0: Um, I've seen firsthand in Mississippi, the state where the abortion Supreme Court case resulted in repeal. Um, so now going in to be
3: the head of the AMA, what is one issue that you see is near sorry insurmountable? Correct. <laughs> so I am the ever optimist. And, and we have tremendous challenges around healthcare reform and access that are a huge lift. And the AMA is not pro choice, it's not pro life, it's pro physician we have come out against the Dobbs decision because it's criminalizing care that is evidence-based. And again, we defer to the specialties. Uh, We really leave that to the specialties and and have done so in the reproductive rights space. But what we don't think is appropriate is the criminalization of care at any level or the government intrusion into the physician-patient relationship. So there was this immediate call for, well, how do we fix it? And there is no fix, right? It's It's a federal decision that is now gonna play out in every state in the nation. There's no overnight magic bullet to sort of, you know, get back to where we were last, last summer. That being said, um, I am optimistic because I think that, again, physicians are smart people. We see uh, the problem gaps in care, and I know that together, collectively, we can fill, uh, fill
0: those gaps. We appreciate your optimism. Thank you. <laughs>
3: Thank you. All right. We
2: maybe have time for one more question if someone has one. Hi. Thank you for this talk today. Uh, my name is Sam.
3: I'm a medical student, fourth year at the University of Vermont Medical Center uh, at the Larner College of Medicine. You've spoken a lot today about the kind of perspectives that you've brought out, what experiences in the AMA you've brought back to your clinical practice in the OR, and whether your perspectives with other specialties has impacted your standard of practice. Yeah, no, definitely. That's, that's a great question. And um, the thing that I've, I've learned the most, right, is together we are stronger. And there's so many times when I've walked into a policy discussion and somebody, uh, and it often has been a medical student, has, has given testimony on what the right course of action um, can be. And, and that is what's really powerful about the democratic process, having open debate and dialogue on the policy front. Um, I see that in my clinical practice, right? And I have the privilege of working in a large academic center where there are 100 other smart people around um, that I can ask for assistance and help. And so one of the things that, that I do um, when I'm in the OR is I, I pretty routinely email the surgeons that I'm working with the night before to just think, you know, anything that, you know, you're worried about that I need to, you know, not talk about 30 seconds before the patient's being induced. And I think that perspective about how we can leverage each other's expertise um, is definitely something that has uh, been really back to my practice and day-to-day. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Jesse, anything you want to say before we wrap up? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. This has been a fun Far ranging conversation, and I hope we'll have the opportunity to speak again. I couldn't agree more.
2: I want to say it is my mother's birthday, so whenever this comes out, happy birthday, mom. Also, uh, I want to thank the audience. So, uh, you know, it's really fun to do this, and we're on like episode 330 or something. So, thank you for coming. Um, I really, really appreciate it, and we couldn't have had a better guest to do it with. I have three daughters, and my middle daughter is nine years old. Her name is Leah. So, I thought it'd be fun to share with you a Leah story, because Leah is one of those kids who there's lots of stories about Leah, so, and I'll tie it into both Dr. Ehrenfeld's work and to the theme of this meeting in a second, but so this is my story about Leah. So when Leah was about three or four, she used to always come to my wife and me, and she would say, you know, how are babies made? You know, how, how are they made? And, you know, for those of you who have kids, you know that when they're young enough, like, you just say, oh, well, you know, parents make babies, and they say, okay, and they walk away. And so we had done that for a while, but she was no longer happy with that answer, right? She said, yes, but, but how are they made, Right. And we said, well, you know, um, well, you were, made, mommy and, and daddy made you. And she said, well, daddy, I wanted purple eyes. Why didn't you give me purple eyes? And I said, well, you know, sweetheart, you know, I, I didn't know you wanted purple eyes. If I had known you wanted purple eyes, then I would have been happy to give you purple eyes. And she looked at me like it was the most obvious thing in the world. And she goes, daddy, why didn't you put my mouth on first? Then I would have told you. I always love that story, both because it's such a good description of Leah, but also because it reminds me that, you know, kids at that age, they don't know what's possible and what's not, right? They just think about stuff that they want to do and they want it to be a certain way and they say, let's do it that way. Why not? They don't know what's what our speaker this morning said. You have to just decide you're going to do something and not worry about whether it's supposed to be impossible or not. And also about the incredible work you've done, Jesse, because I think if a lot of people said, hey, you know, by the time you're your age, you will have uh, been in advocacy work for as long as you have, been a mentor to so many people, have published the things you've published, and now be president of the American Medical Association, they would have said that's impossible, and yet you've shown that it's not. So I would say that the message I would want to leave all of you with, just try to make it happen, and don't listen if anybody tells you it's impossible. Thank you for being here, and I'll end as I always do, and I truly mean it by saying All of you, med students, residents, faculty, what you're doing out there every day is truly, truly appreciated. Thank you. All right. That was really a ton of fun. Uh, And I hope you enjoyed listening to it as well. If you couldn't be there in person, I will say that some of the audio got cut off a little. So you heard, for example, that my usual um, sign off got cut off there. And I'm not 100% sure why we lost some of the audio in translation, but um, hopefully you got the bulk of it. Um, All right. Let us know what you thought, and uh, we'll see you next time on ACRAC. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit, and we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay jwolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's patreo ncom com slash where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today for the ACRAC podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies